0: I always try to encourage people to have a regular time of prayer, a regular personal time of worship in the morning. As their day is getting started, it just sets the day well and uh, prepares you for what's coming in the day. And as important as that is, I think there are still special times when we feel led to pray uh, to turn to God in prayer because of a special need, maybe a personal crisis. I, I remember Abraham Lincoln said, uh, uh, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had no place else to go. Sometimes we feel that same thing and we're just driven to God in prayer because of a special need. Sometimes it's, it's a particular season in our life or in the life of the church Uh, A pastoral transition is one of those and so this Friday we've got this opportunity to come together for a special time of prayer as a body right here 6 30 Friday evening I hope that you'll come and and pray for this pastoral transition and the the upcoming pastoral search it's going to be uh, coming along soon we uh, feel led to pray in, in pivotal times in our lives times that, that we want to make sure are undergirded with prayer. One of the most significant times uh, of prayer for my family is when we're about to say goodbye to one another. Uh, my wife, Tina and I, I I have to be careful when I say Tina around here that you know, got to make sure we're dealing with the right one. My wife is named Tina, and before I leave the house every morning, I pray with her for the day uh, that's coming as we get ready to say goodbye. When our extended family has been together for a while, uh, we will huddle up for prayer as we are about to say goodbye. And often those prayers are, are tear-filled as we commit one another to God's care until we see each other again, who knows when. John chapter 17 is is where we're landing today and in this chapter we see Jesus about to say goodbye. It's one of those special times of prayer as he is about to leave those that he's been with for the past three years. And he is going to return to the Father, he has told them. And he is going there by way of the cross. And so he prays. And the thrust of this prayer that we find in John chapter 17 is that Jesus is leaving. And he's going to be handing the baton to his disciples, ready or not. He recognizes three things as he prays in this pivotal moment. His time is at hand, his mission is accomplished, and his followers need prayer. Three themes coming together. Let's let's just take a look at at, uh, these in turn. First, his time is at hand. Look at verses 1 through 3 of John chapter 17. If you need a Bible, by the way, stick up your hand or catch the eye of these two gentlemen coming down the aisle, and they'll give you one. Uh, It's just a paperback, real easy. We stock them in the back, grab one. If you need one, if you uh, don't have one at home, take one with you. And uh, our passage for today is on page 753 in this Bible. So take a look, John chapter 17, verse 1, after Jesus said this. He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What a loaded statement those three verses are. Uh, Three themes right there within those verses come out the hour, glory, and eternal life. Three very key themes. Take a look at at, uh, verse one where he speaks about this hour. Father, the hour has come, he says. This is a theme that has run through our entire study in the the Gospel of John. You you may remember in chapter 2, when Jesus is at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, they run out of wine, and Jesus' mother Mary says, hey, they've run out of wine. It's like, do something. And his response to her is, not yet. My hour has not yet come. And then in chapter 7, his brothers try to goad him into going to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, knowing there are people there who want to take his life. They say, hey, you want to be a public figure? Go there. Show yourself in public. And he goes, no, not yet. My hour has not yet come. And then at the beginning of Passion Week, right after the triumphal entry, when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time, just... Days ago, from the perspective of John chapter 17, Jesus says, my hour has come. It's time. It's time. And in in chapter 13, verse 1, that we looked at just a few weeks ago, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, it, it tells us there that he did this knowing his hour had come. It was time. And now this. It's time. The next... 72 hours would take Jesus through betrayal, arrest, trial, conviction, flogging, crucifixion, death, burial. And to everyone watching, it would look like an epic failure. But on the third day, he would rise victorious from the grave, sin and death defeated. This is the hour. It's about to happen. The second theme we see here is also in verse 1, and it's glory. Uh, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. This is going to be a time of Jesus being glorified. And to us, it looks like anything but that. But Jesus is glorified in a number of ways. He's glorified, first of all, in finishing the work that the Father gave him to do. Uh, Look at verse 4. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, Jesus tells his disciples, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. This is what he was living for. It glorifies him to finish the work. He's also glorified in providing salvation for us, giving us eternal life. Uh, Look at verses two and three here. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who you have given to him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is glorified in giving us eternal life. Philippians chapter 2 goes into greater detail about what Jesus gave up to give us eternal life. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5, he speaks, Paul speaks about our relationships here in the church and urges us to have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus verse 6, he says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's as far down as it can go, folks. But then the glory comes Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is glorified in providing our salvation. He's also glorified in returning to the original glory he had known from eternity past, Look at verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. To us, this looks like an epic failure, but in this, Jesus is glorified. The third thing we see in verses 1 through 3 has to do with eternal life. Take a look again at verse 2. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Notice it starts with the word for. For, it tells us that this hour that he spoke of in verse 1 has a purpose, and that purpose is to bring glory to God. And God is glorified as Jesus gives eternal life to those whom the Father gave to Jesus. And then in verse 3, he defines eternal life. It's relationship with God. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. J.I. Packer wrote a classic book called Knowing God. And in that book, he writes this. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set for ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. And then he quotes John seventeen three, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. And he quotes Jeremiah 9, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. And he quotes Hosea 6. I desire the knowledge of God. More than burnt offerings, says God. Three powerful themes bound together in these short verses. The long-anticipated hour, the glory of God, and eternal life. Jesus' hour is at hand as he speaks these words to his disciples. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where soldiers will arrest Jesus and start that horrible sequence of events that ends with him nailed to a cross the next morning. And he will give himself there as the one for all time sacrifice for sin that will tear the veil in the temple from top to bottom, this veil that separated God and man. Jesus creates access to the Father Because he has atoned for our sin. This is eternal life. A relationship with God in Christ that goes on forever. Jesus recognized that his time to do all of this was at hand. The second thing he recognizes here in this prayer is that his work is finished. His work is finished. Now, how can we say that? He hasn't been to the cross yet. It's it's not until chapter 19 that he says it is finished from the cross. The reason I can say it is because Jesus said it in verse 4. I have brought glory to you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. His work is finished. So what did he mean when he said that in verse 4? I believe what he meant was that the work of preparing his followers for his departure is completed, is finished. The disciples are as ready as they are going to be. Uh, Verse 4 touches on that. Verse 6 through 8 explains it a little more fully. Let me unpack that a little bit. What has Jesus done to prepare these followers of his One thing he has done, verse 6 tells us, is he has revealed the Father to them. Verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. I have revealed you to them. Jesus is the ultimate in revelation of God. Last week, we talked about progressive revelation. How God revealed himself before the scriptures were written in the created order. Enough that people are without excuse for not seeking God, not acknowledging him as God. But then in Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews says, uh, speaks of other ways God has revealed himself. Hebrews 1 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is the ultimate In progressive revelation, in revelation of the Father. In Colossians, we see more about who Jesus is and how he reveals God fully. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. He's the perfect revelation of God to us. Jesus wanted to make sure that his followers saw the Father, understood the Father by seeing him. He also saw to it that they have understood. Uh, Twice in verses 7 and 8, he says, they know, they know. He has revealed to them the Father and they know and the fact that they know, that they have understood, is demonstrated, verse 6, in their obedience. I look at, at verse 6 for just a moment. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Shows that they have understood what Jesus was trying to tell them because they put it into action. In their lives, they demonstrated their obedience. It wasn't perfect obedience. Neither is ours. But Jesus had the certainty as he saw them that they were prepared now for him to leave them to go to the cross, to pay the price for their sin and ours, and to leave the mission in their hands. So his work is finished, and now he's returning to the Father Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He's returning to the Father. It's what you do when your mission is completed. You go home. He came into the world on a mission, and now he's accomplished it. It's time for him to return to the glory that he knew with the Father before the world began. How is he going to get there? He's going to get there through the cross terrible passage from here to glory. It's one that would put on his shoulders the, the sins of the entire world. Every sin you and I ever committed or will commit, multiplied by billions of people, dealt with decisively, once for all, on the cross. And in that, God is glorified By this display of such amazing grace to the undeserving. Paul says in Romans 5 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus recognizes his time is at hand. He recognizes his work is finished. He recognizes, third, that his followers need prayer. And that's the subject of verses 9 through 26, the rest of the chapter. Jesus equipped 12 men to take what he had taught and done to the ends of the earth. One of them had fallen, verse 12, he speaks of Judas, and this was no accident, this too was part of the plan, he explains, and now 11 are left to spread this gospel everywhere so that eventually it would reach you and me. It's a tall order for 11 people. So he prays for the original disciples in verses 9 to 19. And he prays two things for them. He prays, Lord, keep them and sanctify them. Keep them and sanctify them. Verse 11 speaks of keeping them. He says, uh, I will... Remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them, keep them, by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Keep them. NIV says protect. It's the version we stock here. It says protect, and protect is okay as long as we define it carefully. In light of the fact that each of these 11 men would die a violent death, except John, who would die in exile on the island of Patmos. So clearly, physical protection is not what he has in mind. The verb means keep, uh, cause to continue. So keep them, Father. Keep them going. Keep them strong. Keep them together. Jesus did that himself while he was with them. He kept them, verse 12 tells us, same word, and he guarded them as well by the power of God's name, his holy name, the great I am. That Jesus has been showing us throughout the Gospel of John, he himself is. Again and again, he says, I am the great I am. And we'll see some of the power of that name in next week's passage that we're going to look at when the soldiers come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus protected them spiritually. He guarded them from the evil ones so that the only one lost was Judas, and his betrayal was foretold in Scripture. And notice in verse 13 as well that Jesus wants them to have joy in the midst of all they're doing he wants them to have the full measure of joy even in the midst verse 14 of being hated now how do you have joy when you're hated how do you have joy when you're persecuted how do you have joy when the microphone's doing weird things you can have joy in all sorts of circumstances because joy is so much deeper than happiness. Happiness is dependent on our circumstances. Joy transcends them. Joy goes beyond circumstances. It's it's how the prophet Habakkuk could say in in Habakkuk chapter three, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. He's the one who doesn't change. Our joy is found in him. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus isn't asking the Father to take his followers out of the world. They're going to have joy even while they're going through hard things in the world. And they've got a mission to accomplish. And our hearing the gospel ourselves depends on them being faithful to that mission. He does ask the Father, though, to protect them. Same word in verse 15 as in 11 and 12. To protect them from the evil one as they storm his evil kingdom and take the battle to his very gates. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, after Peter's great confession of faith you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, "Um, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Have you noticed, gates don't take up offensive action. Gates are defensive in nature. And as Jesus tells his disciples that his church will attack the very gates of hell, he's giving them a mission that is not just staying in comfortable confines, but is going out to dark places that need the light of the gospel. The gates of hell will not prevail. The next thing he prays for his original followers after praying Uh, That they would be kept by the power of God is that they would be sanctified or set apart. Verse 17 Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. And sanctify means set apart. In um, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, That word, uh, sanctify, is used of consecrating priests to the priesthood. It's setting them aside for special use, consecrating them. They're set apart. So then how are we consecrated? How are we set apart ourselves? Uh, We are consecrated by the truth, and that truth is in God's word. Verse 17. Living by the truth of God's word sets us apart from the crowd. That may evoke hostility. It should evoke curiosity, at least. And when it does, we need to be ready to give an answer when someone asks us for the reason for the hope that we have. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And that assumes that we're going to be living differently enough from the crowd that people will be asking. And when they do, we need to be ready. So Jesus prays for his original disciples because he wants them to be kept from the evil one and set apart by the truth of God's word. And then he prays for those who will come after them. Verses 20 to 23. Look at just verse 20 with me. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. The message of the original disciples would reach others, who in turn would reach still others, who eventually would reach to us. It's an amazing plan. And so this prayer is for all who have been in that line of transmission, including us. Think about that. Jesus prayed for us before he went to the cross. And what did he pray for? In a word, unity. The sort of unity that the members of the Trinity have always had. Look at verse 21. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He wants us to have that kind of unity. One of Satan's favorite tactics among Christians is to sow disunity in the ranks. He wants to turn the differences that, are, that exist between us into divisions between us. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says something fascinating in verses 18 and 19. He says, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Two very different words there differences and divisions. Differences are okay, divisions are not. God wants us united in the body of Christ. Now, unity doesn't mean uniformity. We can be different from one another. Paul says the differences are going to be there. They have to be there. But we can find unity in Christ despite the differences that exist between us. A.W. Tozer said that a hundred pianos tuned by the same tuning fork will be in tune with one another. That's a great picture. We tune ourselves to Jesus, and we find we're in tune with one another as well. I was at a gathering of evangelical pastors here in Eau Claire uh, this past week, and the host said, what is it about your denomination, kind of threw that out to everybody at the table, what is it about your denomination that, that you really like? And I could answer without hesitation. One thing I really like about the evangelical free church is that we try to major in majors and minor in minors. One of the sayings that has been around the free church for a long, long time uh, quotes John Chrysostom of the 4th century and saying, in essential things unity, in non-essential things liberty, in all things charity. And we can be charitable with one another about the things that are not the essential things because we have unity in those essentials. We're united in what matters most. And notice that our unity is a witness to the world. Verse 23. I in them, you in me, so that... They may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This unity is on display. The world is watching. There's a a word there that's translated then in the NIV. It speaks about what happens when we live in complete unity. It translates a word that means so that it's causal. Our unity is intended to point people to Jesus. Think about the diversity of the church, the body of Christ. In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the body, different parts with different gifts, very different from one another, so diverse. And think about the wide array of people within this body people you may never have chosen, and yet God has put us together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18 says, But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Now, sometimes that's just a lot of fun, isn't it? Sometimes it's just a ton of fun being together in a body that is so diverse. It's it's educational, uh, it's exciting, and sometimes it's not so much fun. Uh, Sometimes uh, we are to one another what uh, one author called heavenly sandpaper sent to rub the rough edges off of one another, and yet we recognize God's ordained all of that as well and so it's a good thing too and the very ability that we have to come together and work together as different as we are is a testimony to the wisdom of God it's a witness for him I have been in more than a hundred churches in Wisconsin I've been in board meetings and congregational meetings all across the state. I've seen some churches that have lost sight of the truth of 1 Corinthians 12, 18, that God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And I'm so thankful for the unity that I see here at the bridge. It is a gift of God Preserve that unity. Work hard to keep it. Ephesians 4.3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It points people to Jesus. When they see Christ's followers together, as diverse as we are, pursuing Him. Jesus prayed for He prayed for our unity. The reason why is in verses 24 to 26. Take a look at that with me. Jesus says, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And here it comes full circle. To the glory that Jesus asked to see as he opened this prayer in verse one. He wants us his followers, to see his glory, to join him in heaven and see firsthand the glory that he had before the world was created. And we experience that by knowing him, verses 25 and 26. And that brings us right back to verse 3, where Jesus defines eternal life as knowing him. So do you know him? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Have you put your trust in him? Have you asked him to forgive your sin and to live in you? If you haven't done that, I'd invite you to do that today. Don't leave this place without knowing him in that personal way. This farewell prayer of Jesus showed his awareness that his time was at hand, that his work was finished, that his followers needed prayer as he entrusted them with the mission of carrying this gospel to the ends of the earth. And those original 11 did an amazing job when you think of it. Who would have thought that the gospel starting with those 11 would reach the ends of the earth? But Jesus prayed for them, and he prayed for us as well. So how are we doing? Are we living a life that honors him? Are we coming in contact with people who are far from him? Are we praying for those people? Is anyone asking us for the reason why we are different? Let's be faithful links in the chain that brings this gospel to the ends of the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that Jesus prayed for us, that we would be faithful as those original 11 were in bringing the gospel to a very dark place. We recognize darkness all around us, Father. Help us to bring light to it, to bring the light of the gospel. Help us to show people that they can experience eternal life knowing you. A relationship with you that goes on through all eternity. Help us be faithful. And Father, I just pray if there's anyone here this morning that has yet to enter into that kind of personal relationship with you, that person would just say, Lord, my heart's open, come in. Forgive me, cleanse me, live in me, that I can spend the rest of my life giving glory to you and sharing the same good news with others. In Jesus' name, amen.